we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's the 1st of March 2017. With me on this occasion is Hugh Harris. Hugh, how are you? I'm good, Trevor. How are you? Hugh, as a privileged white Anglo-Saxon male in a Western liberal democracy, how could I be anything but good? (laughs) That's good to know. (laughs) Uh, We've got a few items on the agenda, Hugh. We're going to later on. We'll we'll carry on with our conversation from the previous um, episode, but a few others to get through. And the first one that I wanted to talk to was about football. Are you are you a football follower at all? I am an AFL football follow, follower and very vaguely on rugby. Right. Okay. Rugby league, yeah. Okay, because I've had this great idea here. Oh, by the way, dear listener, sometimes I say things tongue-in-cheek, so I might propose something but not really mean it. So so before you, you know, this is the first time you've listened, before you dismiss me as a complete nutbag, just, you know, accept that sometimes these things are just done for a bit of a, as a theoretical exercise. Okay, having said that, Hugh, I've got this great yeah. idea. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna start a, a professional football team, and I've got this great idea that I'm gonna I'm gonna promote it as being an all-white Anglo-Saxon team. Only whites <laughs> are allowed. Okay. <laughs> so so you can respond with one of two words. Okay, you can say that's either good <laughs> or bad. What do you think? Uh, well. Shouldn't I be um, whipping myself into howls of outrage about this? Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a word worse than racist. Um, Just bad or do. You've got good or bad. Yeah. So you can, I take it that's I, a bad. I, I, oh well, you know, you kind of you kind of hinted you were going to talk to you were going to say something about indigenous football teams. So I, I can kind of anticipate mm. where 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 you're going with it, where the where the where the poor listener might be thinking, what on earth is he on about? Mm. Uh, so is yes. it simply good or bad at this point? Well, uh, all right. Let me say. Let me let me fall into your trap and say. <laughs> Bad, terrible, terrible okay. thing. What are you thinking, Trevor? I'm well, reporting I, you to the Guardian. Okay. Well, hang on. I'm, I, I want your consent to this venture, Hugh, because your opinion is important to me. So, what if I, what if I add to it a little bit, and I'll I'll specify that members of my all-white Anglo-Saxon football team need to be suffering from some form of oppression or disadvantage. Okay. So. Okay. Well, Actually, that might be a little bit difficult, seeing that they'll be on you know salaries of perhaps four hundred thousand a year. So, if <laughs> if if they're not oppressed, then their ancestors from the last couple of hundred years were oppressed in some way. Does that does that alter things now? Does, does my scheme somehow now change from good you know from bad to good, or is it still bad? Which one? 
Oh, look, if you were going to make it from an oppressed minority, um, say, well, they're, 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 say, still they're still Anglo-Saxon white, so... Say, say it was a Gaelic um, Irish rugby team mm. or it was a Scottish Celtic uh, rugby team, you know, might, you, might, you might see that as being okay. But, um, you know, if you went for a white Anglo one... Look, I you know, to be honest, uh, most sporting teams don't really have any good reason for for being together, do they? They they, they, it's, they don't. I don't think they need to have a reason for being together. So, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd be. I don't think I'd be able to criticise it really. Oh, there we go. See, I thought I'd have to come up. So, so that would be okay. A white Anglo-Saxon football team with with an oppressed ancestry. Well, I yeah, think it would be legitimate. I think it's a good case of where you would um, you would initially cop a whole lot of accusations of discrimination, but then when you turned around and pointed at um, other football teams, such as the Indigenous ones and all of that, and what about state-based football teams, um, football teams like the Brisbane Broncos, you know, you know, teams of things are necessarily discriminatory by their nature because you discriminate on who you choose to, to have in your team. And so that if you said that everyone had to be, or you wanted to form a team of some particular sort, say it was all, you know, we have all women's sports, all male sports, that's not discriminatory. Mm. So, um, no, I don't think I'd have any issue with it. Okay. Well, I thought I'd have to go further, but I, sh- I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have given you the hint. You, but you would have you picked it up anyway. Off. I tipped you, you off. But, but you know, Hugh, I was just looking at the paper the other day, and it was you know the NRL Indigenous All Star Team, um, and I just thought to myself, really, uh, is that a healthy situation that we're we're basically creating a football team on race? And, you know, the point of my exercise before was just to flip things the other way around. Would we find it acceptable? And, and you're particularly liberal in your views, but a lot of people wouldn't be. I think, you know, there'd be a lot of people who would who'd be saying that, you know, the Aboriginal NRL Indigenous team is fine, but an, but an all-white team assembled on the same lines, but merely of a different colour, would not be acceptable. And... You know, I, I you know, to be honest, I had no strong views on the matter. I don't really care. But it just mm. is interesting that we accept a racist arrangement like that. Um, when when you look sort of underneath it all, you say to yourself, "Well, I don't really know that that's a healthy situation." Yeah. Well, I guess people would argue that the point of it is to to celebrate. Um, our, our, our indigenous um, people, mm. and so uh, from from that perspective, I guess I, I wouldn't have too much issue with it. Um, if they were getting smacked thirty nil, um, or you know something like that, would be a bit strange. You'd have to reconsider it in that context. But then, if you look at Australia's um, international rugby team, they're, they're largely uh, largely Islanders who are, have come to Australia. Mm. Um, and, you know, so I, I don't know. I don't know what you say about that. See, see, I think the thing to celebrate is a football team where there are Aboriginals and whites and Asians and Lebanese and all sorts of people playing together and it doesn't matter. Mm. Like, to me, that's the team to celebrate and that 
celebrates diversity rather than when you actually segregate teams on that basis. So, uh, so I understand why it's done, but um, I really, I mean, would they do that in America? Would they, would they have an all-black basketball all-star team playing an all-white basketball all-star team? Do you think that would happen? Well, could you imagine that happening in basketball? That's just and, what I'm saying. And, and, and the white the white team wouldn't stand a, wouldn't stand a chance. Well, would well, they? well actually, they, they, they get smashed. Well, you know, the old adage, "White fellas can't jump." But but <laughs> Hugh, would that happen in America? Would would there be an all black all stars team and an all white all stars team? Would that be acceptable? I don't think I don't think it would. I think it would, but I think it raises another interesting point. I, I've just read um, a book called Humankind by. Um, I think the author's name is Alexander. I can't, I can't exactly remember, but he points out that there are significant differences between different populations of people. Um, we're probably, you're probably aware that the um, concept of race um, is not as significant as what we've been led to believe, the different colours of people's skins and all of that sort of thing. The difference between different ancestral populations, though, in different parts of the world um, um, do create differences that are significant within people so that, say, a large amount of people in the Asian, Southeast Asian area are um, lactose intolerant. Yep. People from certain parts of Nigeria and Kenya are incredible distance runners because it's in their genes that they're going to be good at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, African-Americans are obviously very strong at running and basketball but then imagine taking that now to cerebral differences or differences in IQ. That's the big taboo. Mm. No, one, no one would would talk about that. And I think that's going to be an interesting area of study going forward, how that's going to be played out and how people will be able to discuss these differences, which are quite genuine differences and do exist. I'm not sure how significant it is that there are those differences, but when you talk about putting different sporting field sporting teams on a field, look at something like um, look at the the All Blacks. Mm. Would they succeed if they didn't have um, the, the the contingent of Maoris that dominate their teams that have been consistently good at rugby? I mean, what makes New Zealand rugby so dominant worldwide? It it, it must be the the amount of um, the um, genes of the people who are actually in the team. Mm. Um, so those, I think that's, I think that's quite an interesting but taboo conversation that needs to be that needs to be had. Um, and it's an interesting thing, science worldwide, where people are too scientists are too scared to talk about race now, and a lot of them are having the conversation saying that races don't exist at all even though they do exist, but the differences between populations in different territories, uh, or the dif- the differences within races are greater um, than the differences between races. Mm. Good good luck to any researcher trying to get a grant to explore <laughs> differences in intelligence between the races. I think that would be a sticky one to get to get uh, some grant money for. So um, so yes. Uh, so there we go. So that's uh, a little diversion, which isn't really apropos any modern contemporary articles or anything, but just interesting to think about. Um, Hugh, um, 
Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Abuse, that's going to be coming out with something at some stage at the end of the year. And uh, I was just thinking to myself, well, what do, you, do you think anything is going to come out of it? Do you think there'll be anything that's realistically going to change much at the end of the day? It, it, I'm hopeful that there will. I, I'm, it, it will. I was thinking about this. What can they really do? What can a Royal Commission do aside from make recommendations? But when you look at what the commissioners and the attitude that the commissioners have had, they have really come out strongly. The, um, I watched a good portion of the interview with George Pell and they really they really went in quite hard. I think um, they, sh- they should at least suggest that Australia changes its relationship um, to the church and to the Vatican, that um, uh, Jeffrey Robinson came out recently and said that we should end our recognition of the Vatican as a as a country as a as a and its diplomatic status we need to close our embassy there and because part of the reason that the Vatican was able to deny the documents uh, was under their diplomatic immunity where they said it was was um, what were the words neither possible nor appropriate that's right so you reckon that's a possible recommendation that they would might come I uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. Mm. I, I'm not sure that they will actually make that recommendation, but there's that. I think they will say something about the confessional, mm. that, that, that they cannot, um, you know, who was it, uh, Peter Sarson or one, one of the um, pedophiles went to the confession in order that he would be protected so that he could um, he could confess his crimes, get absolved of them, and so that the church couldn't say anything about them because they were protected under the seal of the confessional. Mm-hmm. They will definitely say something about that, I would say, and they will probably say something about celibacy, and they will they will insist that the Catholic Church does some some tangible things to improve its behaviour and also also other religious and secular institutions that that we really shouldn't be allowing this sort of stuff to happen Um, going forward. People need to change their attitudes to it and they need to change the processes um, within the Catholic Church. Um, And they may make recommendations about the redress scheme which um, to make the institutions accountable. Yeah, look, I suspect, I'm worried and suspect that they will come down with some recommendations about better systems for dealing with complaints, some sort of independent ombudsman or independent people outside of the church to be involved at early stages and perhaps improve discovery laws and perhaps something to overcome the Ellis defence. But when it comes to things like the confession and celibacy, I just am fearful they're going to say, well, you know, we recommend the church change its ways, but it's up to them to do it. And and it'll never be changed and nothing will happen. I just, I think they'll still have a hands-off approach to the church, that they won't recommend the government get its hands dirty and get involved and, and actually make changes in the in the church structure. So... That's my um, that's my fear of what will happen um, or won't happen with that recommendation. So that'll be interesting to see, Hugh, um, mm. as to what happens there. 
I think they'll make the recommendations, but whether anything comes out of those recommendations will be interesting to see. Yeah. Now, you suggested that as part of today's talk, we should talk about, well, what are we going to do about things um, yes. in terms of our goals and, uh, and you know, what I'm going to do now that I've quit the secular party and, um, and that sort of thing. And uh, like I'll kick off here because... Um, really, I see it that a few things need to change in this society. So, first up, we need some sort of generational circuit breaker in relation to our children to get at least a generation that comes through without being subjected to religious indoctrination. So, we've got to get religious instruction out of our state schools. We've got to stop government assistance for private religious schools. And we've got to get school chaplains out of state schools. So if we can, if we can somehow stop this indoctrination process for a one generation, uh, it would make a big change. There's a whole bunch of special privileges that we've got to remove. So they've got to start paying tax. We've got to scrap the Ellis defence, which means makes it hard for people to sue the church and get money out of them. Uh, as you said, scrap diplomatic rec- recognition of the Vatican. We've got to do things like stop all these religious programs on the ABC and other government-funded um, sort of areas and stop the special exemptions from anti-discrimination that these groups get in terms of employment of teachers and their ability to selectively marry people and even things like hospitals that can refuse abortions if it's not within the sort of doctrine of their faith that the particular religion that's funding the hospital believes in. So... There's all those, but um, so they're all sort of political policy sort of things, Hugh. But ultimately, we've got to challenge this moral authority that religions still claim. There's still this reverence for what an archbishop or or a cleric or somebody might say about morals, and that's where we've got to use this royal commission to say. It's clear these people have not a, any special moral bones in their body compared to the rest of us, and perhaps they're dysfunctional compared to the rest of us. And we've just got to stop giving the respect that um, that society's given to these people. So, so that's the sort of aims I would have, Hugh. And um, how we get there and, you know, what I'm going to do, I guess I'm going to try and be a social commentator voice that might pop up on radio or television or the media somehow, Facebook, videos, whatever. I'm not exactly sure, but to try and get that message out as best I can. Yeah, yeah. all of that. All of that sounds great to me. Those are... Um those for me are the priorities for first one the the schools the children religious instruction the chaplains um and also the the taxpayer funding of private schools which are virtually all religious for me that's a key one that's one that infuriates me i um i don't entirely agree that we need to have we need to do that as a circuit breaker to religious belief or um, uh, I'm not sure that you were implying this but it sounded like you might have been saying that I don't think um, that 
teaching religious instruction or having chaplains in schools is having the effect of um, maintaining religious belief in Australia. Mm -hmm. I'm not entirely convinced that it might not be actually having the reverse effect. Um, As you know, I've I've, um, spent a fair bit of my time writing about um, religious instruction in schools and the lessons are quite fundamentalist. They're quite odd. They're quite shocking. Even when you're looking for things that are bad about them, it was quite shocking to discover actually how dreadful, how how simplistic they are. Mm-hmm. Um, teaching things that teaching that Noah's Ark is true, that Adam and Eve is true. You know things that are scientifically either discredited or or completely disproven. And um, finding out that um, there are missionaries who teach in schools. There's one bloke, Ron Onks, from the Gold Coast who's a U.S. missionary who's claimed to have made 120 conversions to Christianity last year mm-hmm. in, his, in his September newsletter. So there's all of that that goes on. He, has also, he also sent a, um, a letter home to a child's parents to tell, to tell the parent that creationism is, in fact, true, the world is 6,000 years old, and that men did walk with dinosaurs. So, so you're kind of suggesting that by the time kids get to perhaps grade eleven or twelve, they recognise it as a as a load of old rubbish and aren't actually influenced by it that much. Is that yeah, kind of what you're saying? Yeah, so, I, I am. I am. I, I have a strong campaign against this stuff with Ferris and with um, Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools, but I don't actually think it's. Um, I don't think it's having an overt, overt influence on children. I think the internet. Um, and the culture that that a child grows up within yeah. um, can't possibly be overridden by thirty minutes to an hour okay. of a religious class per week. Okay, but would you say the same in relation to an Islamic school? Uh, well, if it was a yeah, in terms of a religious Islamic school, mm. that'd be. From what I've read about them in England. Um, I've read about a couple of quite fundamentalists um, schools in in the UK that sound absolutely dreadful, mm-hmm. where they are where books are withheld from them. They're taught um, they're taught evolution is false. They're actually taught that it's you know that's not true all the way through to um, all the way through to the end of school. And then you've got um, exclusive brethren schools, which um, is quite dubious what people are being taught within those schools, given that they think that the secular world is evil and ungodly uh, and that tertiary education um, is totally unnecessary. People shouldn't um, shouldn't be obtaining tertiary education, yet the government is funding exclusive brethren private secondary schools. So I think so. I think you might be right when you're talking about Christianity, with the instruction perhaps not being effective at the end of the day. But you know, with these cult-like groups that you just mentioned, and perhaps an Islamic school, I got a feeling they can be quite effective in yeah. uh, in indoctrinating kids. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good point. And regardless, it's, it, I think it's got to go because it's discriminatory. We wouldn't allow people like us to go in and tell kids that there is no God. 
You know, that would seem to be outrageous that if we were going in there telling six-year-olds that naturalism is true, that there's no scientific evidence for God or for an afterlife or that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> why not let kids grow up, learn about the world and teach them critical thinking? I also differ from a lot of my colleagues in thinking that I don't really like the option of teaching children ethics either, which mm -hmm. they offer in New South Wales as a fallback if you opt out of scripture. Yep. I, um, I don't think that's essential. And I think the only reason it's offered is so that six-year-old and seven-year-olds can can uh, receive scripture and and offer it as, a, as an alternative. Uh, so I think, I think we need to get rid of it. Um, I also agree with your other points on hospitals, on, on uh, secular issues in general. I think it's interesting that abortion is now going to be an election issue in Queensland, given that the LNP refused to support the bill and perhaps these bills weren't prepared very well uh -huh. um, in terms of limiting limiting the amount of late-term abortions, or I'm not sure of the actual detail, but um, that's the excuse that the LNP gave for not um, allowing a conscience vote on it. And so the Palaszczuk government's referred it to a... Um, to a uh, commission and then they'll offer it if they get re-elected so it becomes an abortion issue and then you've got stem cell re research genetic research but the final thing you said is i think the real reason that people like you and i need to be out there in the media a lot more is that you look at the drum you look at q a you look at um all of these panel programs it's very rare that you don't have someone from a religious persuasion on there mm. When you look at um, when you look at say the abortion debate, and then Mark, the uh, Archbishop of um, Queensland, Mark Coleridge, comes out and makes these outrageous statements yes. that uh, <laughs> questioning that, Jackie that, Trad's Catholicism and uh, and, uh, and suggesting that um, legalizing abortion would be similar to Nazi-style eugenics. Yes, this guy came out. Only days after he'd warned his congregation of the grim outcomes of the Royal Commission. Yes. And you've got the Pope lecturing world leaders on wealth inequality while he sits uh, in charge of the world's wealthiest financial, the world's wealthiest institution. Mm. This institution is unfathomably wealthy. Mm. They don't. They don't release their um, financial records because it's staggering how wealthy they are. Mm. They have um, property in. They have millions and millions of dollars worth of property in Australia. For instance, they have a turnover in the states of about over a hundred billion. Um, and if they sold all of their wealth, that they could end um, world poverty in one hit. <laughs> they could. Yes. <laughs> you, I agree with uh, everything you've said there, except I'm going to take you up on the on the ethics classes, which you say don't need yeah. to be um, taught to children. And sort of I'm thinking ethics and critical thinking sort of classes. And yeah. um, so currently, dear listener, in New South Wales, there is a program called Primary Ethics, and it is run by volunteer groups so where schools might have religious volunteers going into the classroom and teaching, you know, Bible stories, uh, the primary ethics people send their volunteers in and offer ethics classes. And they do sort of thought experiment stuff as well, Hugh. And 
So in this situation, you know, how would you respond? And in that situation, how would you respond? And, and why would you do that in that situation? And um, the little bit I've seen of the content on their website looks to me to be pretty good. My objection to the New South Wales arrangement is I don't think volunteers should be walking in the doors of our schools. I think if there's something worth teaching, it should be taught as part of the curriculum by the class teacher. And and that sort of program justifies the religious programs that happen. So if you're saying, well, we want people to come in and teach secular ethical values, then the religious groups can say, well, we should be entitled to you know, send people in to put our side of the story. And you end up in a battle of who's got the most volunteers pushing yeah. their particular barrow. And the exactly. secular world is never going to win that battle because the religious world will just come up with volunteers left, right and centre. Um, yeah. So I, I wouldn't want to see a similar program in Queensland, but I would love to see that taught as part of the curriculum within uh, as a school subject because Hugh when we look at debates in social media you know and on the secular party facebook page and even on your facebook page Hugh I was reading some toing and froing between a few of your friends over um sort of issues of racism um I think people's (laughs) thinking and ability to critically analyze and debate these topics is sadly lacking and the the caliber of debate that you see on social media and on you know mainstream, mainstream media for that matter is so poor i think it demonstrates we have to educate people in how to talk and analyze and and people are so quick to launch into allegations of racism and an islamophobia at the drop of a hat, and I think these people are well-meaning. Yeah. Uh, they just haven't been taught, hold on a minute, in order to make that allegation, you need certain fundamental elements to make up your claim, and they're not there yeah. in this case. And you, no. you've just jumped into a name-calling situation. And I think myself that there's a dire need for that in our school system somehow. So I'll... Have I yeah. persuaded you? Yeah, we're, you're preaching to the converted. My, my my problem with ethics is exactly the problem you outlined in that they they're bringing that if it's going to be taught by bringing volunteers in, it shouldn't happen. Victoria is looking, uh, and my organisation, the Rationalists, is in, involved in it in some respects of looking at bringing in humanism to be taught or um, secular values to be taught in schools. I don't I don't agree with that either because mm. it just it just justifies. I don't agree with people of my persuasion going in and proselytizing or evangelizing to children any more than I do for fundamentalist Christians or Muslims or whatever. I really don't care. Just let teach them critical thinking, teach them that as part of the curriculum. So absolutely agree with you on that. I'm just, I thought we'd have a moment of disagreement there, Hugh. So um, uh, one other thing, I in, in, in previous episodes of this podcast a long, long time ago, um, we, we referred, Scott and I referred to 
something that was happening in Europe, and I think it might have been Germany, where they had uh, secular confirmation ceremonies. And uh -huh. these secular groups would, would conduct courses for teenagers who were kind of in the latter years of high school where they were... Um, Oh, they'd go to museums, art galleries and other things. People would talk to them about all sorts of stuff, but along the lines of um, secular ethical thinking. And, uh, and in the end, there was a ceremony and people sort of graduated and it was, and it was referred to as a, as a secular confirmation ceremony. And one day when I get a spare moment, I'd like to look more at what they do along those lines because that intrigues me a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Ah, okay. So that was that. Um, did you have anything else you want to add on that one before yeah. we move on? No? Good. No, let's move on. Okay. Um, Ayan Hersey Alley is coming to Australia and some billboards were produced um, which had a picture of her promoting the event where she's going to be speaking and they kind of had a picture of her with her head sort of opening up and people with placards popping out of her head and the people were sort of uh, Muslim looking in appearance and the placards read things such as slay those who would insult Islam and butcher those who mock Islam and Hugh those billboards have been banned. Been banned, been banned yep, it's similar to when Sam Harris came out um, about a year ago that his billboards were also banned. But his billboards said um, de more deliberately mocking things about about religion. I can't remember exactly what they were. There was about three out of four of them that I thought were pretty tame and then one of them was a bit harsh. Um, but whoever the billboard, um, the, I think there's two major billboard companies in Australia and I don't think either of them would run anything that's controversial in terms of religion. Mm. However, however, it's quite acceptable to put uh, Christian messages on the back of buses and, and all that sort of stuff. That's, that has happened before mm. in different states. I think, it's, I think it's quite disgraceful and there should be, if you're a billboard company, you deliver messages to people, you advertise people, you, that's what your business is. Mm. I think there should be some sort of um, requirement that you that you do not censor messages or you, you cannot refuse messages unless they are particularly uh, hate inciting or um, or a, or they're a problem. There's no way that those billboards would have run foul of 18C. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't see that they would have. Um, I thought they were. I thought particularly the Hersey Alley ones. They're so tame. They they the um, it's. It's sort of a picture indicating these ideas are what Hersey Ali is going to talk about. She's mm. going to talk about Islam. She's going to talk about, um, you know, slay those who offend Islam. We know what her, um, we know what she's going to talk about. It is going to be controversial and um, many Muslim groups um, will oppose it. And some of them have gone on Facebook saying that they oppose the, the tour. But what can they do about it? It's a little bit like the bakery producing cakes for your gay couple, isn't it? If you're in the business it of is. producing cakes, you should produce them for everybody. And if you're in the it business is. of producing signage, you should be producing it for everybody. 
Yes. They also, um, I also seem to recall that they, um, some shopping centres wouldn't show the Atheist Foundation, the Atheist Foundation census campaign. Mm. Do you recall that? I do. Uh, I thought that was, so their policy is not to show anything of a religious nature is what what their reasoning was. Mm. I, I Yeah, I, I guess that's what you, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit sympathetic to a signage company that says, for example, we do not do political advertising at all. So we will never produce political stuff rather than... Yeah selecting one or another and if it was true that a signage company said well we never do anything that either promotes or discourages religion i'm kind of sympathetic if they say we we avoid that topic entirely Um, yeah i think that's fair Yeah. yeah dear listener not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. So that's a kind of a freedom of speech issue. And at the same time, um, we've had this... There's a guy called Kazar Trad, who is um, a prominent Muslim leader. He's the president of the Australian Federation of Islamic Councils. And... He went on the Bolt Report and basically put forward a view that domestic violence against wives was okay, provided you used it as a last resort if you first of all bought them flowers or a box of chocolates and if if, if that didn't work then domestic violence was a last resort as a last resort was okay. And um, I can remember um, meeting a mate of mine and he was telling me about this and I said, that's weird. I haven't heard about this. Yeah. Where, where did this come from? And um, and then on Media Watch the other night, an explanation was given in that the Murdoch press ran the story and it appeared in various other news sort of media outlets, a hundred plus stories about this. But... Mm. The ABC, um, The Guardian and the Fairfax newspapers um, ran nothing. Yeah. I find this particularly concerning and I was quite surprised by that. I, I, I saw it as well on, um, on Media Watch. I hadn't seen the reports of it. And given how outrageous the things that he said were and the yeah. way he said them also in that um, he was promoting a moderate stance so from what he was saying, it sounded like he was trying to uh, water down the actual stance and make it sound a bit more moderate and more acceptable, that um, it really is something that's quite outrageous. And if it was said by someone from um, the Catholic Church, by by someone from perhaps the uh, coalition or the National Party, can you imagine if George Christensen said that? Mm. 
you know, I, 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 particularly I was staggered that Fairfax didn't report it. They would have been well aware of it. Um, the ABC had it on one radio show, apparently. Yep. And uh, the head of editorial policy said that it wasn't good enough. It wasn't extensive enough. We decided it was worthy of coverage, but I don't think we covered it well or extensively enough. They, I think they engaged in propaganda in the extent of, of not, of not um, reporting it. And if you look at The Guardian's coverage of the whole um, Yasmin Abdel-Megid um, situation as well, it really has been completely terribly biased almost yes. unbelievably biased and also made worse by the fact that she's a columnist for the guardian yes yeah quite extraordinary because you and i spend a lot of time looking at news media stuff Hugh, and we, we do we, we come do. across a lot and that was a story that had been going on for three or four days just goes to show that we don't you know look at we don't subscribe to the to the uh, News Corp that much, obviously. Um, well, that's what I, I was thinking. That's what I was thinking that, you know, I, I pick you as being probably more in the centre of politics, certainly not uh, certainly not the the Guardian style of um, person. I, I'm sort of a little bit more towards the centre but more progressive, but it just shows that I'm reading Fairfax, Guardian, ABC a lot more than I'm reading News Corp. Yes. So... Um Make me think. I'm going to have to start reading some <laughs> some Murdoch Press. Egad. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. But I, uh, you know, credit you to Peter Dutton here because he on the radio um, mm. when this first happened um, said, "Well, where are the feminists? I mean, where is the ABC on this, Ray? The ABC presumably are running this at the end of their bulletins. This will be on the seven o'clock news. This will be on the seven thirty report tonight." I mean, the ABC and Fairfax will be outraged by this. But you know what? I suspect they'll have nothing to say about it because they're hypocrites. If it was you or me or somebody else who made such an outrageous statement, they'd be calling for us to be taken into the town square and dealt with. Well, he was prophetic, wasn't he, with that? He was. He was. He was. Um, he- I, he, I, I consider him to be quite a goose, yes. but on that, on that occasion, uh, yeah, I, I read that also. He really got that one right, didn't he? Mm. And it really makes you think that the lack of follow-up on ABC and The Guardian, based on how the Kayser Trad thing links to the narrative that Yasmin Abdel-Magid was trying to sell on Q&A, that there was no follow-up, no connection between those stories. Mm. On in in the Fairfax Press, the Fairfax Press did write a story by um, they published uh, Ruby Hamad's article. I don't know if you read that, but that was quite critical of, but um, but argued both sides of the coin on that um, Q and A exchange between Lambie and McGeed. Right. Yep. Yep. Hugh, I'm I'm in the middle of writing a little article slash essay. Yeah. On, on the topic of, you know, identity politics and yeah. Yasmin Abdel Magid, right. and um, I've sort of I just started listing sort of features of her ideology and consequences, and I'm, I'm up to point number eighteen. So, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> and I, I consider them all to be discrete, discrete ideas and consequences. So, um. And again, that's sort of 
it'll it'll hark back to my argument about the education of people and how we look at moral questions and the need for people to criticize and and look analytically at things so it's my little attempt to dissect identity politics um so i think next time we talk you i'll possibly have it ready and we can i'll be able to send it to you and that could be our our topic of discussion next time but um, that sounds good before sounds leaving good. before leaving ayan hersey alley are you going to go and see her talk i um yeah i haven't booked it but i am thinking of going right I don't know if no, I yeah. will. It's quite expensive, really. It's two hundred and six. I saw. I saw tickets were two hundred and sixty dollars, yeah. but and then someone yeah. was saying that you can get them for sixty five dollars. Right. Um, so. Um, I kind of think. Will she really say much that isn't already covered in in a thousand different YouTube clips that are freely available? I, I, you know, yeah. I just, I, I've, re- a lot. I've read her. I've read her book, Heretic. So mm. I, I'm I'm doubting she's going to say much. That's I hope she they put her on Q and A again, mm. which they did last time she was here. I think I think it might be worthwhile because she really is quite formidable as a speaker. Mm. She when she was on Q and A, she dominated the whole show. Mm. Uh, and I also her article about um, the Abdel Magee Q and A thing yes. was absolutely the crucial article. She absolutely decimated the um, the other point of view. In in fact, she 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 changed my point of view on it. I was a lot more sympathetic to Yasmin Abdelmajid, despite how how um put out I, I might have seemed on our last podcast about the whole issue. Right. Um, but um, she absolutely crucified her. Right. I had no idea that you had a scaring of sympathy for her. So that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. I didn't have too much after reading uh, Christine Keneally's article in The Guardian about, did you read this one, Catholicism has done more harm to Australia than Islam? Um, she's a favourite for the podcast. Uh, that would have been, that sounds like an older one. How old's that one? No, no, no. This is recent. It's only in the last, it's 27th of February. But Ah, I I tell you what, it's a beautiful uh, argument for the fallacy of relative privation. So what she's she's argued here is she started off with Catholicism and the outrage for the Royal Commission, and she used that article to pit Catholicism against her favourite columnist, who she's apparently never met, Yasmin Abdel-Magid, um, to say that where is the where is the outrage about child abuse and why is why is the right wing of Australia directing all of its abuse to this um, Muslim apologist who appeared on Q and A and said and said a few things. I, I did so, read that, and because I remember her saying, "Where is the outrage over Catholicism?" and and I thought to myself, "Well, I've I've just spent eighty three episodes of a podcast expressing outrage at Catholicism, so you know, I've done my bit." I, I think there's I think there's been plenty of outrage about Catholicism. I and she's basically making that argument that because something is worse, then you can't criticise the other thing, mm. which is the fallacy. And uh, but she she ends her article um, so critically, like it's easier, isn't it, to pick on a young woman with a scarf on her head, or get upset about two little girls in a in a hijab, all in the name of making Australia safe? What Brave defenders of freedom of Australia, you are. And I think, how outrageous is that to be to, to be making that argument? And she starts off also, Trevor, by saying her first sentence, 
there is zero chance that Sharia law as a repressive criminal code used in certain Muslim majority nations is going to be enshrined in Australia. Zero. Mm. And as you uh, you told me, which I wasn't aware of, that they um, AFIC had tried to bring in Sharia law in 2011. And I've also become aware that there was a previous attempt in 2005 to um, to to put something up for a, a moderate form of Sharia law in Australia. So I think it's quite disingenuous of her to say that there is zero chance. And then to continue on, it seems ridiculous that this even needs to be written because she's inserted the deceptive little caveat in the middle of the sentence as a repressive criminal code. Mm. You have to think that the the sort of um, apologetics that are being disseminated by people like Yasmin Abdel-Magid, and then when she goes on to the hips of Tahir um, Facebook or the page of the leader of that, that she really is pushing towards some sort of moderate Sharia to be available to Muslims in Australia. That's what they would like to happen. Mm-hmm. So to, to start the, the argument that there is zero chance is, and, and put that caveat in, given that that caveat means that Christina Keneally knows that they, have, they have, that they are trying this or that they have tried it before, it's really quite deceptive, and um, her whole article, she writes really well, but her whole article is a rhetorical device based on a fallacy. Mm. I didn't alert you to the attempts to bring Sharia into Australia. I think that was from uh, Karen. But I I just take the view that, well, you've only got to look at the UK and, and uh, the elements of Sharia law that are uh, in force there. And... If I think that if things can happen in the UK, then they can happen in Australia. Um, yeah, they're, they're possible. So, oh, you know, it's it's all this identity politics. That article is smacks of sort of you you cannot begin to criticise a person's ideas because you are necessarily then criticising their identity, and that's sacrosanct. And you you must not do that. It's just um, it's the level that the debate has got to. So, uh, um, Hugh, before we leave um, for our final topic, just on Ian Hersey Alley, I put her in the same camp as Sarah Hyder and yep. Gad Sad on one side yep. and Majid Nawaz and Sam Harris on the other side. And... Uh, they differ, those two groups, on the issue of whether Islam can be reformed. So Majid Nawaz and seemingly Sam Harris take the view that moderate elements within Islam can change the doctrine to a more moderate form. And the other three I mentioned, Ayan Hirsi Ali, Sarah Hyder and Gad Sad, take the view that that's just not possible. And really, these people, you've got to get them to jump to some sort of atheism for anything to change because there's no there's yeah. no reform of Islam that's possible. So yeah. she's more hardline than, say, Majid Nawaz, and I think I agree with her um, on that her, um, Yeah, well, I'm not sure I agree that that's what she... Uh, she She's argued in, in Heretic that Islam should be reformed um, among five different lines. I can't remember what they all are, but they are all aspects, or some of them are aspects of Islam that are quite fundamental towards right. it. 
Yeah. So the, she goes into whether you're a Medina Muslim or a Mecca Muslim. And um, I think some of the issues with it, I, I, I think... I think what what will eventually happen is not that you can reform Islam, it's that Islam will one day become like Christianity, a form of belief that's held in a more nominal way and a more cultural way than than in a literally true way, of, of which it seems to be practiced and increasingly is practiced amongst Islamists who are promoting the literalist version of it. But, um, Sam Harris on his podcast had a fellow on who felt that Islam can't be reformed, uh, Shadi Hamidi, I think his name is, right. uh, who suggested one of his points was that the Quran is taken by um, Muslims, at least a portion of Muslims, the Islamists, as being not actually the, the not just the words of God and not just the message of God, but the exact speech of God. Mm which is a slightly different emphasis that this is exactly the words that Allah or God was saying. So it makes it a little bit more difficult to take something that has been said, um, such as we do with the Bible, and say, oh, well, look, it's just allegorical. Mm. Or uh, we don't need to worry about that because it's, um, we can, because it's a written of a different time and a place and um, we can interpret it differently. It does, it does, it seems to me, make it a bit more difficult to reinterpret the Quran and the Sunnah and all of these other things if you take the Quran to be the exact speech of Allah. But I think it will, be, I think it will come through shattering belief, through, through um, no one knows no one can verify, no one can um, make it, provide evidence of the afterlife and of God and Allah. And eventually those secular precepts that we insist on um, have to be um, have to be accommodated because um, they can't provide any alternative proof. Mm. And therefore the belief must um, pace the enlightenment, as, as happened with the enlightenment, become more nominal and more secular in that it can't govern all aspects of life. That's the hope that I hold out with Islam. In, in, in preface to that, though, it simply has to be defeated as being a force in politics. Mm. And I think that's one of the aspects of secularism that I'm increasingly embracing is that uh, I'm beginning to suspect that there is quite a widespread movement to bring about things like Sharia and to, um, and the apologetics for for um, the identity politics, politics from the Muslim community. I think there is more behind it than that. Yes, I think you're right. I think there's definitely a movement there um, that we have to be aware of. Well, maybe Ayan Hersiali will expand in her talk about you know where she stands, whether she does think it's Maybe I'm wrong. I thought she was in the camp that said you couldn't reform. But um, if you'll get, you go, Hugh, and take good notes, and I'll I'll use the money and take my, and take my wife to dinner. <laughs> well, yeah. it sounds like a good plan either way. Mm. Now, dear listener, the final topic on our agenda, which I've simply got here as the fist defends humanity against an alien thought experiment. So, so those of you who heard our last uh, podcast that Hugh and I did uh, will know that we, we got into an, you know, alien thought experiments. Hugh, what have you got for me? All right. Well, um, the one we discussed last time was, I guess I was defending uh, meta-ethical relativism 
and I was saying that it, it is quite difficult to substantiate objective moral values and that all came from the trolley problems that which we were discussing and so I think one of the final ones we discussed were <clears throat> where would objective moral values lie in the situation where we where we had a, a race of aliens approaching us from a different galaxy we uh, they had their weapons trained on us we by this stage might have developed some sort of defense system against against uh, a new species of aliens would it be morally right for us to commence an attack on that alien species on the other hand Given what we know about humans and how we interact with new uh, cultures when we when we come across them, uh, as evidently from our history, we wipe them out almost on every occasion. Um, wouldn't that alien uh, that alien civilization be quite justified in simply wiping us out? And um, well. And, and the ethical dilemma in this, Hugh, was uh, so, that the aliens will do what they think is genuinely in their best interests and we'll do what we think is genuinely in our best interest. Yeah. No problem. So, yeah, no problem there. Uh, I don't, I, but I think when, when um, people talk about objective moral values, they, they suggest like that in every case there is there is a there are objective moral truths so there are things that are true from a moral perspective but what i'm saying is that i can't get past the fact that it that it seems to me to always be relative to the person or persons concerned that there's always a um there's always a conflict between the individual and the group there's a different morality for Trevor Bell than there is for Trevor Bell as a member of Australia or as a member of um, a family. And there is a different me a morality for our species. And when we, um, when, um, you, when we think of utilitarianism and also um, perhaps, say, the moral landscape by Sam Harris, where Sam Harris proposed that science may be able to solve the problems with morality in the future because we fundamentally know that the values by which morality should be based are the flourishing of humans or, in brackets, sentient creatures. Mm. Now, if you, the, the, one of the main reasons that that thought experiment occurs to me is that, well, if you say that human human flourishing or sentient creatures, therefore we are we're starting off by being confused about what um, what our moral values are. And so, in the situation of another race or another civilization attacking us, the moral dimension of that problem is simply based on whether you are the alien race or whether you are the human race, or whether you might take a third outcome to think, well, what is best overall? Is it best overall that one of these civilizations um, triumphs over the other, or is it best that both civilizations exist in harmony with each other? And all of it seems to me to depend on values that keep going down like turtles. You know, it, it seems to me that you can make a different assessment of the situation depending on what the underlying value you ascribe to it is. Is human flourishing the key moral value? If so, then attack the aliens and get rid of them.
Is it the Can benefit we, of sentient okay. creatures overall? Let's let's get the sentient creatures feature out of the way here. So um, I'm swimming in the ocean and there's a white pointer shark there. So you know the shark wants to eat me because it's hungry. Yep. And I yep. want to save myself from the shark, and I've got, you know, some spear gun or something, some lethal weapon. So, yeah, absolutely no problem for me to protect myself and kill the shark. The shark, yeah. absolutely no problem for the shark to want to kill me. Yeah. Well, it's okay for us to have conflicting objectives, yet be but, morally yeah. true to ourselves. Yes, but true. But even the case of us saying killing the shark is not—it's not necessarily objectively morally true. It's—it's it's, you're saying yes, you're making a justifiable and good case that you should be able to kill that shark to defend yourself. Yes. Yes, agree with that. But is it say defensible to kill animals so that you can eat their food? And what if they were bigger and more smarter than us? Would it be defensible for them to kill us and eat us as food? And therefore, the argument, the argument seems to suggest that, well, the smarter or more powerful you are, the um, morality, it's, it's the... Um, they the, will be the winner. Morality, yeah, the, the biggest and strongest so wins. So we're each operating with the same moral framework and it's really just a case of either luck or good management as to which species wins. Yeah, but it's not. But, but the morality of this situation is relative to whether you're the human or the shark. It's relative to whether you but, think but, it's acceptable well, but, for humans to kill other animals. There would be people who would argue that, no, you should swim away. Uh, uh, yeah, but and we're take, in a, take, your, take your chances. But, yeah. so what if it was the last shark on Earth? If it was the last shark and you were going to end the entire species, um, no would, problem. Would, would, would it be acceptable? <laughs> still, still not a problem. <laughs> if there's a trolley and the train's going to kill the last shark on Earth or it's going to kill a human being, well, we're going to kill the shark. Like, we're going to send the train uh, down and it's goodbye, I don't shark. We, I don't, no, I don't, think we sh I, don't think that's, I don't think that's necessarily a, a, uh, a lay down misere. I think if it's I think if it's if it's between yourself and the shark, <laughs> it would be hard pressed to find a human who's not going to do that. But then is that, that's not a moral is that a moral principle that's involved there, or is that simply our evolution and our survival instinct? And we're saying that it's justifiable. I don't think it's saying it's a moral good. I think it's saying it's justifiable. I think morals have to derive from our 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 evolutionary functions if you like and and our evolutionary hardwiring so yeah. we have we've developed over the over the ages in a certain fashion physically uh, and psychologically and to expect people to to counter that um, doesn't make sense to me to me yeah. people have evolved in a certain way and and your morals will will derive from that to a certain extent. Yeah, I would agree. And I, there's an evolutionary moral argument which was made by a philosopher who I think whose name was R.M. Hare. 
around about the turn of the 20th century that suggested that our morality is contained within our evolution as a species. And um, it, but that was an argument for relativism. Well, see, this gets back to the trolley problem and the proximity thing where, you know, we have evolved in order to form social groups, but we feel a connection with, with groups who we have proximity with and we're mm. prepared to do things for those people uh, in return. And that's a sort of an evolutionary thing that's happened. And, yes. and that gave a moral justification as to why we will assist people close to us um, but not assist people who are strange to us and not proximate. So we go into the burning building, pick up our kid, and our favourite painting worth $3,200 that we would otherwise should have spent saving a starving yes. kid in Africa. So, uh, so I don't have a problem in saying that our morals derive, at least to some extent, from our evolutionary development and to expect people to do otherwise is unworkable. It is, yeah, I agree. I think we fundamentally agree, except over the semantics of whether you would call that moral relativism mm. or whether you would whether you would call that objective moral values. I think within the context of saying that our morality is in a, a meta-ethical sense relativism, relative, within the context of saying that it comes from our evolution, who we are, our social bonds, all of that sort of thing, within that context you could come up with um, a system of rights and wrongs for each particular situation. but And um, that's what Sam Harris argues in The Moral Landscape, that um, he doesn't say that there are absolutes, but he would say that for any particular situation, if you wanted to ascribe the value of what's best for overall human flourishing that you could come up with a scientific analysis of what the best course of action is and that not to be absolutist that there might be a number of different peaks and troughs on the moral landscape so there might be a number of different um, moral actions that are that are correct some slightly better than others and that 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 provides for objective moral values now i agree with that 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 argument is probably a practical and good way of talking about morality, but I don't agree that it that it's that it gives you objective moral values, because if you are going to have a situation where you're going to allow quite a number of different moral actions, then you are sort of you are admitting that there are not objective moral truths. If you are going to choose one course of action as opposed to one another course of action and that both of those were going to achieve a certain amount of moral value by some sort of standard. If you had two different ones, then you must be applying two slightly different moral standards or values. So, for instance, in one situation, you might be ascribing the needs of a certain group above the needs of an individual. We still have, um, in terms of morality, we have a huge amount of things to sort out as to how we um, prioritise different outcomes. Mm. If you look at something like abortion, for instance, mm. how could abortion be sorted out 
in an objective way and to say that there is an objective right or wrong moral answer to that question? Um, see, I take I look at abortion from the basis that the fetus is reliant on the goodwill of the mother until it is developed to the point that it can exist on its own. And up until that point, it's, it's uh, at the mercy of the mother. But once the yeah. fetus is actually um, capable of self-sustaining, then uh, it, it acquires the rights to say, well, I'm out of here and I want to, I want to exist. So, th- so there you go. There's a moral... That, that's my sort of approach to... That's it, yeah. That's a good, that's a good um, argument. But you wouldn't say that that's an objective moral truth, would you? You probably wouldn't go that far. Oh, I might. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Would you be in favour of late-term abortions just just at the whim? A moral truth is, look, when when we talk about rights, you know, Mm. this person has a right to a certain thing. The danger is, does, does your right create in somebody else an obligation to provide. Yeah. And uh, when people say that a fetus at eight weeks gestation has the right to survive, the problem is that creates an obligation on the mother to continue with the pregnancy. Whereas when we say a fetus at 36 weeks has a right to survive the same obligation doesn't um, become imposed on the mother. And, in fact, it's in her own interest to deliver a baby. It's far safer for her to do so than to have some crazy abortion. So you can make a distinction that way as a moral truth that works. But but you could also argue, I'll argue briefly on this, that a lot of people argue that abortion or the fetus um, acquires rights as it develops and becomes um, that the um, the developing baby is able to feel pain right at certain points that sentience gradually develops that when the baby is born it doesn't suddenly become sentient when it comes out of the out of the womb or wherever. Um, so the, the distinction of it being born is not necessarily from a biological view, um, you know, a, uh, it, it doesn't provide it with any particular, it's not a milestone that you could say categorically gives um, that, that the baby writes, whereas it has a lot of these things um, these characteristics the instant before it's born. So that's where the, the difficulty between uh, for, for the whole abortion debate seems to me to be saying, well, a, uh, a, a single-celled zygote or a dual-celled zygote um, doesn't have any rights. It doesn't have any sentience. But a trillion-celled baby at, 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 at um, week 33 or 34, I personally think, um, we should avoid wherever possible late-term abortions. I certainly wouldn't be allowing them on the whim of um, of mothers. 
And I don't think many, there is exceptionally few. I think that the, the, if you were going to say it was an objective moral truth, the Leydam is their counter argument is if it was a moral truth, you would think that it happens more often than it does. It's actually exceptionally rare for women to have an abortion, um, which is late term. And when they do have them, it's because the either the mother is in danger of her life or the baby has severe deformities or brain malfunctions that mean that it's going to be a um, that it's going to have its life in danger or um, have serious operations or a deformity or a um, medical condition for the rest of its life. A terminal condition. So I think it's it's I think that's a terribly difficult situation to come up with a moral answer, which sort of explains the, the situation we're in, in in Queensland, where we where abortion is still illegal. See, I'm quite happy with my explanation, and I know the Victorian legislation on abortion more or less more or less you know creates a dividing line at a certain gestation period, which which matches up with with when a fetus is, is is likely to survive. And the other part of that is that sort of period, I think, probably also lines up with the situation where it's actually safer for the mother to deliver a baby than to have an abortion. So, mm. uh, so conveniently, at a certain point, it becomes in the interests of both the fetus and the mother that a delivery happens. So... Um, I'd agree there. I'd agree there. But but we are, you'd have to admit that we're arbitrarily saying twenty four weeks. We can't say that that is a mor- that is a truth in the same way as a scientific truth is a truth. Correct. Such that the, the moon exists or that the a day goes for a certain amount of hours and seconds. Um, that's where I get that moral truths. Uh, cannot be the same thing as scientific truths. And this argument that there are objective moral truths or moral values falters on that because it's always a matter of judgment. It's always a matter of what values you superimpose upon the values that you're trying to defend. I mean, that is an arbitrary dividing line that we come up with, but uh, we do it because it's the best we can do. And we recognise, well, we need a, a law that applies across the board because it's not practicable to do otherwise. So, um, so you know, again, I, I don't have a problem with saying that morally I'm quite confident that that's a fairly defensible moral position to take. And I could argue for... Uh, why the feeling of pain is not so yes um, but, but you but you but you, wouldn't you concede that you 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 seem to be arguing for that it would be abortion should be allowed up up until when the baby is born but then we've talked about the 24 week gestation period after which there need to be some fairly exceptional circumstances to allow the abortion to continue. Mm. So wouldn't you therefore concede that um, you can't have both of you can't have both of those options and still say that there's there's an objective moral truth there? Um, there has got to be an arbitrary point by which you decide, therefore, the decision has got to be relative to how you to the criteria you use to come up with that decision. And I agree with you that I don't have a problem with either of, with um, the 24 weeks either. 
you know, I, I think within the framework of human morality, we do make need to make those decisions. But I think it's to our value, and to our benefit, if we acknowledge that it is relative. Well, and therefore, it's, it's, if it is relative, we get, we get to Trevor, we get to get away from the religious um, absolutism of saying that things like abortion are simply morally wrong, and um, and they make an argument which is against. They try to make an argument against secularism and against atheism, which says that moral relativism is um, evil and that we'll be cannibals and all that sort of thing, that we'll be, you know, we'll become barbarians if we accept that that's true. But I don't think that that's the case. We just need to make a more sophisticated argument that mor morality is relative to the values that you um, choose. But some of the values that we agree to are fairly universal. We just need to agree on which judgments we make. And we do that with the laws that we have in our society. We make certain judgments, whereas other societies make vastly different judgments. Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, you know, the Sudan, different parts of the world make vastly different judgments than what we make when we create our laws which also seems to suggest that there's a large amount of relativism that, at play in terms of morality and in, in applying it practically. But, but I'm prepared to criticise some of those, some of those morals, if you like, of, of yeah. those societies. So I'm prepared to say objectively, uh, you know, slicing the clitoris off a young girl is a bad thing to do. Yeah, so, yeah I'd agree. With that. So. I would say there are objective morals that is not all relative. That we can say certain things are good and certain things are bad and it doesn't matter uh, what position you put yourself in. Mm. Well, I... I... I don't think so because you can't – good or bad depends on where, where you're looking at it from. So, 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 okay, well, on that issue then of, of – So female genital mutilation. Yes. The people yeah. who do it and in the cultures who practice it think it's good. Yes, and uh, I say it's bad and I say not only should we not be doing it in our culture – but they should not be doing it in their culture. Yeah, you and I think I, I agree with agree? you. I, you know, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I think there are arguments to be made. I don't think you can quite go to the extent of saying it's an objective moral truth. Well, it because, is because, if, it, because if you tell me when you when you justify why female genital mutilation is bad, mm. if you go into the justification of why it is bad, mm. then that's your relativism. The reason why it's bad in this society is the reason why it's bad in that society as well. So yes, my reasons but, but, don't but, change. So what are reasons, the reasons? Uh, so my reasons are, aren't relative. If I, if I told you my reasons don't change... Your it, reasons aren't... Your, but your reasons provide the values by which you are saying it's bad. So there was yes. one philosopher that argued that if you say something is bad, it's always a um, open question because you need to say why it is bad. Yes. Um, 
because you have to supply the reasoning as to why it is bad, yes. then you are necessarily saying that there are some values or reasoning that under underscore why something is bad. Therefore, the morality of their question is relative to the reasoning you supply. So, for instance, people in those cultures, as misguided as they probably are, would say that female genital, genital mutilation has certain benefits, that everyone in the society has it, that it provides cultural um, connection between people, um, that if a person didn't have it, they might be seen as an outcast um, in our societies where, where um, male circumcision used to be very common, that it was uh, hygienic, that it had cultural benefits, that it was aesthetically better, um, all of that, you know, they're all, they're all arguments in favour of it. All right, Hugh, we're over time now. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm. <laughs> Next time. Whereas this one was entitled The Fist Defends Humanity Against an Alien Thought Experiment. Next, next time when we get together, it'll be The Fist Defends African Girls Against Female <laughs> Genital Mutilation. Fair enough. Have to be. <laughs> Could we make it about something else? I don't like thinking about that topic. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Well, you know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to... Uh, I've got... Um, the moral landscape here. I'm clearly, I'm going to have to finish reading that. I've got a bit of a way through it. But I I did read um, Quest for a Moral Compass by Kenan Malik, and he would be my favourite um, sort of philosopher, historian of ethics. And okay. he makes criticisms of Sam Harris in there, which um, I might bring to the table next time. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, all of this... Uh, you know, alien thought experiments and female genital mutilation in Africa. Uh, ultimately, Hugh, we need to bring this back to, uh, and it's, it's all useful, but we need mm. to bring this back to Australia and our society. And what we said earlier in the podcast with, you know, what are we looking to do? You know, and I, I said... Uh, a circuit breaker and the indoctrination of children and the removal of these special privileges and and the and the taking away the respect that religions are currently enjoying and their and their status as um, providers of moral thought and guidance. I think one of the problems and why religion is still hanging around and why we just can't see it disappearing as quickly as we think it should is we're not providing an alternative ideology um, that's going to bring people together uh, we just can't say well it's a load of hogwash and you're on your own and good luck to yeah. you uh, yeah. people need a sense of community a sense of belonging a tribe they've got to have something along those lines to hang their hats on and um, so, yes, I think as we, yeah, I agree with you. As we develop I these thought experience, experiments, I think the ultimate uh, objective is, is not to save the human race from aliens, but to, it'll all, dear listener, <laughs> believe it or not, it's all going to distill down to, you know, a valid, you know, how to run a, a virtuous and meaningful life in a, 
in a warm embracing community in Australia and progress the Australian society somehow. It's all gonna <laughs> it's all gonna come to that in a magic formula down the track, which you will have to continue to listen to to pick it up. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Good on yeah. you. I, I, thank you. Can I just make one more comment yes. just about about what you said? I, I agree with all of that with religion that there needs to be something else offered. And I think in one of the forms that that might take is a making sense of all our mortality, because I, I think that the gap that religion um, comes in through is the fear of death and the trying to make sense of our mortality and the wishful thinking of when people die that that they go to somewhere. And um, I think there's a case to be made that there's a lot of benefit if we just accept things the way that they are and we look at the world through a naturalist worldview and um, we we live our lives understanding our mortality and how short our lives are and that after they're finished, um, you know, we're not going to be able to rely on eternity. Um, that, that's got to be part of the philosophy of secularism to think about um how, the best way to live our lives while we're alive rather than focusing on death. I agree. I agree. Yep. Yeah. True. Very good, Hugh. Okay. Well, uh, dear listener, that concludes this episode. Um, not sure what's on next week, but we'll be back and we'll talk to you then. For now, goodbye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, 
let people know. Thanks.